We've already noted in this small book, in the first chapter, Jonah's plan. Jonah had a plan to get away from God, to get away from God's will, to get away from the implications of doing God's will. But Jonah's plan was overruled by God's plan. See, God has a purpose, God has a plan, and it often cuts right across our own plans and our own purposes. When we were looking at chapter 1, we actually divided the chapter into seven different headings. I'm not going to go over those again tonight. But we want to proceed from where we left off with Jonah being thrown into the sea by the mariners, the sailors, so that the sea would cease her raging. Now this was something that they did at Jonah's behest. This is something that Jonah told them to do because the Lord wanted him to do that. And so these men who ultimately came to know the Lord as a result, they forsook their false gods, they acknowledged the true God and his sovereignty and even made vows to him and offered sacrifice to him. They took up Jonah and they cast him forth into the sea. The Bible says the sea ceased from her raging. It's interesting to note those places in the Bible where the Lord made the seas and the winds to calm down. The Lord did that in his ministry more than once with the disciples in the New Testament. And he did it here in the Old Testament where by having Jonah thrown into the sea, he immediately made that sea that had been raging into what was almost like a pane of glass. Such was the peace that came upon it. And so we learn again here about the sovereignty of God, about the providence of God, about the overall control of God. He's in in control even of the weather. Though many don't believe that today and think that men are in charge of the weather and the weather patterns. How foolish and how arrogant mankind really is. But as we proceed to the second chapter, we can actually include with that chapter the last verse of chapter 1. And there we read Jonah 1 verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So before Jonah was thrown overboard, the Lord already had what one preacher called a living submarine for Jonah to live in for three days. The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You'll notice it doesn't say in the book of Jonah that it was a whale. But it was a whale because the New Testament tells us that it was a whale. But it's a special whale. It is a great fish that God had prepared. It was a unique creation. So the Lord was looking after his servant. He was preparing a way for his servant to be preserved and kept and then used in his service. But the Bible tells us that Jonah there was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Now, before we go any further, we have to say again that God's sovereignty over all created things is underlined here. 
There is nothing but nothing outside of God's control. Now I know that as Christians, that belief and that statement of orthodoxy is often tested in our lives. Especially when something really bad happens. And we're tempted to say, well, how could the Lord be in control of that? What's that got to do with God's sovereignty and God's control? Well, we don't know the answer to those things quite often. But we do know that the Lord is in control. By the way, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll find that on one of those days, verse 21 records, And God created great wheels, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. God created great whales, beluga whales, blue whales, every kind of whale that you can imagine, God created, and he created this one, who swallowed up Jonah. When you go to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 17, The Bible tells us something in verse 27 of that chapter. Matthew chapter 17, verse 27. Here the circumstances are that the Lord is being asked to pay his tribute money, or he was asked the question, do you pay your taxes? Do you pay the temple tax? The Lord said, well, it's not really something that we would have to do, notwithstanding lest we should offend them, he said to his disciples, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. So the very first fish that is on the end of that hook, he said, when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Now think about this. How did the Lord know that there was a fish in that water that had a coin in its mouth? Because he's God. Because he knows everything. So we have an instance here of the Lord's omniscience. He knows everything. But we also have an instance of the Lord's omnipotence. Because the Lord was in charge of that fish. He would send that fish at the precise time when Peter would throw his hook into the water, that fish would take that hook. And Peter would open that fish's mouth and he would take out the piece of money that was there. And the Lord was so much in control of that situation that that piece of money was exactly the amount that was needed for him and Peter to pay their temple tax. This is a great miracle. But that's the sovereign God that we serve. There's nothing outside of his control. And again, we could refer (coughs) to John chapter 21. Once again, it's an instance of Peter and others who were out fishing. And this time, the Lord asked them a question, children, have you any meat? Knowing full well the answer to the question. But they answered him, no, we haven't got any meat. We haven't got any fish. And so it says in John 21 verse 6, He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, not the left, the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of 
fishes. The Word of God tells us that they were dragging the net with fishes in verse 8. And when the Lord told them to bring of the fish that they had caught, in verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Now why was there a hundred and fifty-three? Believe it or not, I've read commentators of all sorts of weird and wonderful notions as to why that was the case. And I don't really concur with any of those thoughts. I don't know why there were 153, but what I do know is that God kept a record of how many there were. I don't know that Simon Peter and the other men counted the fish, but the Lord certainly did. Because the Lord is the one who is good at math. The Lord knows the numbers. And it's true in terms of evangelism as well. When we're fishing for men, the Lord knows how many are truly saved. The Lord knows the number of those that are in the gospel net. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Because He's in control of the whole process. Now not only is the sea at the Lord's command, but we learn from these various scriptures that the fish in the sea are at his command. Think about that. All those creatures that are in the waters are under divine control. So here in Jonah chapter 1, there's a great fish that has been prepared by the Lord and it is appointed to swallow up the prophet. And there was a prophetic significance to this that the Lord Jesus Christ himself pointed to. Because as we find in Jonah 1 verse 17, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And in Matthew chapter 12, our Lord Jesus tells us that that is the sign of the prophet Jonas. Because Christ would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured here. This is typical teaching right here in the prophet Jonah. But right there in that fish's belly there was a prayer meeting with only one person at the meeting. Well, two if you count the Lord. Jonah prayed, verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Unto the Lord his God, out of the fish's belly. There he is. And he's offering prayer to the Lord. It's a certain kind of prayer. There are circumstances that accompany this prayer. I want us to think about the prayer of Jonah tonight. And learn lessons for our own prayer lives. As we profess the Lord's name. I'm speaking now to Christians particularly. Those that are not saved are not really on praying ground. Oh, they can come like the publican and pray, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And if they come to the Lord on the basis of the work of Christ and ask for His forgiveness, the Lord will answer that prayer. But generally speaking, those that are not saved are not on praying ground. But believers are. And so here's a man who offers prayer. It was a prayer in distress. That's the first thing I want you to notice. It was a prayer in distress. Now, it is a remarkable fact, is it not, 
how some folks will never pray until they're in trouble. That's a sad reality. And we discover here that Jonah had already been rebuked for not praying. Remember that in chapter 1, verse 5? Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. But what were the mariners doing in verse 5? They were afraid and cried every man unto his God. These frightened sailors were praying because they were in trouble. Jonah's not praying, he's sleeping. And he has to be rebuked by a a heathen shipmaster who said in the sixth verse, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Jonah, start praying. Start praying, Jonah, so that we don't perish. So Jonah had not been praying up to this point, apparently. And how could he be praying to a God that he's out of fellowship with? Why would Jonah be praying when the Lord has spoken to him and told him to go to Nineveh and he refuses to go? He goes his own way. He's not going to be praying to the Lord. He's not in a, he's not in a fit position to pray. And so he's rebuked here. Arise and call upon thy God. So Jonah's not praying. But then the Lord brings him to that place where he's in the seas, he's swallowed by the fish, and he begins to pray. How often it is, as old Thomas Watson the Puritan put it, that sometimes God places men upon their backs that they might learn to look up to him. And here is a man who is seeking God in circumstances where he has been brought low. Sometimes the Lord has to do that. I read an instance of this in Second Chronicles, in chapter 33, where it speaks of a king by the name of Manasseh. The Bible tells us of that man, he was only 12 years old when he began to reign, And he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And then it catalogues his sins. He was an evil man. He caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, worshipping the god Molech. Manasseh was an evil, wicked individual. But when we come down to Second Chronicles 33 verse 10, the Bible says that the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't hear what the Lord was saying. Wherefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him 
and heard his supplication and so on. Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. A man who didn't pray, a man who didn't believe in praying, the Lord afflicted him and brought him to the place where he was willing to pray. Sometimes the Lord has to do this. And Jonah prayed in the midst of distress. Note how he refers to this in this second chapter. Some of the terminology tells us how things were for him at that time. In verse 2 of Jonah chapter 2, he uses the word, mine affliction. He talks about praying out of the belly of hell. In verse 3, he talks about the floods compassing him about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. In verse 4, he said, I am cast out of thy sight. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks further of his experience. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. And yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. And then in verse 7, he said, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. Think of all of these things. Affliction. The belly of hell. God's billows and waves passing over him. He's in corruption. His soul fainted within him. All these terms tell us that Jonah was in the midst of a time of distress. You know the afflictions of a Christian should drive that Christian to prayer. Again, Thomas Watson, when he said that, that God lays men on their backs so that they might look up to him, he didn't just mean unsaved people either. Sometimes the Lord has to allow distress and affliction to come into our lives as Christians to draw us nearer to him. But is it not a sad thing that oftentimes people will not seek the Lord in their affliction? But they'll blame God and become bitter in their affliction. I had a friend in my church back in Scotland all those years ago. Who confessed to me that his father was angry with God. Because in his early married life he and his wife had lost a child. I'm not sure if it was stillborn or miscarried, but in some circumstances they lost a child. And from that point, the man wanted nothing to do with God, blamed God for his situation. That's a sad thing. I have to point out that Jonah was not blaming the Lord, even though he was willing to recognize that it was God's hand of chastening upon him. Because if you look again at the terminology in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Thou hadst cast me into the deep. Not the sailors, not those mariners. I'm not blaming them for throwing me overboard. It's, it's the Lord that has done it. He said, All thy billows and thy waves pass over me. He recognizes that this affliction is from the Lord. 
And we should remember this in times of trouble. It's not always the devil who is afflicting you. There are some, in a very elastic term, Christian churches who are taught that anything bad that happens is the devil. Or their ministers will cause them to believe that everything negative in their lives is attributable to the devil. And yet it may be that the Lord is using affliction and sending affliction to teach us valuable lessons. What does the hymn say? Though he may send some affliction, twill but make me long for home. For in love and not in anger, all his chastenings will come. The Lord sometimes allows things into our lives that we just simply don't understand the reason for. But it is His hand. Psalm 39, verses 9 and 10. The psalmist said, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because Thou didst it. Remove Thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. Reminds me of another verse in the prophets. Hear the rod and who hath appointed it. And yet our own flesh can get in and the devil can get in while we are undergoing trials. The devil loves to kick you when you're down. The devil loves to try to get one over on you when you're in a time of affliction. Jonah chapter 2 verse 4 gives us this verdict that Jonah had about his own condition. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. He felt that he was totally estranged from the Lord. He felt that he was cast out of God's sight. Now, I find that strange because that's the very thing that Jonah wanted, apparently, at the beginning. Isn't that what it says in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3? That Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He didn't want to be in the presence of the Lord. But now he's praying about that and complaining that he's cast out of God's sight. You feel like saying, make up your mind, Jonah. Do you want to be away from the Lord? Or do you want to be with the Lord? He feels now that he's out of God's presence. And I will tell you, there are Christians who start to feel that they're not saved at all when things start to go wrong in their lives. Sometimes that's the first conclusion that they draw. I don't think I'm saved. If I was saved, this wouldn't be happening to me. How can you say that? Someone said to me quite recently about a certain thing that happened in their life. I think maybe the Lord was punishing me through that. I said, well, what makes you think that? Do you think Job could have reasoned? Because he lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his family, he lost even the company and companionship of his wife and his friends, that he could have concluded it was because of his sin. 
That's what his friends said, but they were wrong because the Holy Spirit said that Job was a perfect man, an upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. He was a man who was living for the Lord. And things started to go wrong really badly in his life. Really badly. He and his wife didn't just lose a child. They lost all ten of their children in one day. Think about that. Every bit of his wealth, his cattle and his sheep and all of his animals, all his livestock, all destroyed in one day. His health broke down. His wife turned against him. And what did Job say? I am cast out of thy presence. No, no, no. In all this Job sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. In fact, he said in the midst of his affliction, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I think our attitude of mind can be affected by how we're feeling physically sometimes. You will know this. Illness and despondency or depression can often go together. Sometimes you're not feeling well. And when you're not feeling well, you don't necessarily feel saved. That's how it can often be. But this is the time when we must pray. This is the time when we must cry out to God. One of the Puritans said, When you are not feeling the faith of assurance, you need to exercise the faith of adherence and cling to the Lord. In the hardest of circumstances, in the deepest of afflictions, the prophet Jonah sought the Lord. It was a prayer in distress. As well as that, we can say it was a prayer of dependence. I like what verse 1 says in chapter 2. We're told that he prayed to the Lord his God. It doesn't just say pray to the Lord God. It's the Lord his God. No matter about all that had happened, Jonah was still the Lord's. So away with this idea that you get away from the Lord, then you lose your salvation. No, you don't. Jonah never lost his salvation. He lost the sense of it. He lost the comfort of it. He lost the assurance of it. But he never lost it. However, there was a conflict between human reason and supernatural faith. Think about this. Jonah was physically cast down. He was mentally cast down. Because he talks about the fact that his soul fainted within him. That's the term that's used. Verse 7 of chapter 2. When my soul fainted within me. He was so discouraged. It was then that his prayer came in unto the Lord. See, Jonah continued to depend upon the Lord. Jonah's dependence upon God gave him, in the, gave him the victory in the midst of his distress. Notice it was in his affliction that Jonah remembered the Lord and began to pray. I wonder why he used that term. Verse 7, I remembered the Lord. Had he forgotten the Lord? Faith triumphs even in a time of adversity. 
The very time that you don't feel like praying is the time when faith needs to go into exercise. Because in distress and in the midst of trial, your faith is being tested. The Lord has you in the crucible. He's putting you into the furnace and he's testing your metal. If I could use a pun. Are you pure gold or not? And so the prophet here is brought to the place where he had nothing else to depend on but the Lord. All the human props were kicked out from under Jonah. He had nowhere else to go. He had nowhere else to turn. He had nothing else that he could do. He's in the midst of trial in the belly of a fish. And his dependence is upon the Lord still. And it's actually clearly shown throughout this passage. Verse 2 He says, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. That's the whole reason that he prayed. Because of his trouble. And he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I. You can't get any lower than that. And thou heardest my voice. Again, look at verse 4. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. And there's that wonderful statement that we looked at the other week. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Thank God I'm able to look again to the altar and to the blood and to the place of sacrifice and forgiveness. What lovely words these are. Even a backslidden Christian may come to the Lord for restoration and forgiveness. He can look again to his holy temple. When we think about it, the temple, it's mentioned in verse 4, thy holy temple. It's mentioned again in verse 7. Thine holy temple. This was the place where God had chosen to place his name. The symbol of God's presence was there. We know about the Shekinah glory. The pillar of cloud. It dwelt upon the blood sprinkled mercy seat between the cherubim. So Jonah could look again and find acceptance and mercy from God at the mercy seat. Just like you and I can. In Christ, we too can find perfect forgiveness and restoration. What does it say in 1 John chapter 2? My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, or you could translate that, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate, as I've often pointed out, is the same word that's translated comforter in John 14 verse 16. Parakletos, the one called alongside to help. Oh, when we've sinned, We have an advocate, we have an attorney, we have someone who pleads our cause before the Father's face. And Jonah's supreme faith can be further seen in chapter 2 of his prophecy in verses 6 and 7. Because even though he talked about his experience, it was negative, he said, Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. In other words, the Lord heard my prayer. 
And although at this point he's still in the belly of the fish, Jonah had faith to speak of his rescue as though it had already happened. He's talking about being brought up from the depths. Yet he's still in the depths physically. He's in the belly of the fish. But he's looking by faith to where God will answer prayer. And the Lord will enable us to do that just as he did with Abraham. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 20 and 21, the scripture says of that patriarch, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. A prayer of dependence. I think as well we can say this prayer of Jonah was a prayer of dedication. A prayer of dedication. Look at verses 8 and 9. Of chapter 2. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Jonah learned that his own notions, his own thoughts were lying vanities. And in a broad sense we can say the world and its pleasures are empty and vain. And those who tonight are found running after the lying vanities of the world are only forsaking their own mercy. But the prophet thanks God for bringing him out of trouble before it even happens. This is faith. Again, verse 9. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. He's going to give thanks to the Lord for his deliverance, even though he's still in the belly of the fish. Because he knows it's going to happen. This is faith. And he dedicates himself afresh to God. It's a prayer of dedication. I will pay that that I have vowed. Can you say that? Remember that time when you were in some sort of trouble and difficulty and you promised the Lord that you would do a certain thing or certain things as a result, if he would extricate you from that situation, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll do this, this, and this. That's a vow that you made. Have you kept that vow? Now, it reminds me again of the sailors on the ship that he had just been on. We made this point at the time that they made vows. Chapter 1, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. They're just new converts. These are just new believers. And they're promising the Lord things. Jonah had made vows unto the Lord. And now he's determined to keep his word. I will pay thee that that I have vowed. When we make promises to the Lord, let's remember that the book of Ecclesiastes speaks about that very thing. And how that when you make a vow unto the Lord, you are not to defer paying it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, 
defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. And that's what Jonah was determined to do. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. The Lord is going to hold you to your word. There may be times when you make a vow to the Lord, you don't even remember that you made that vow, but God remembers. The Lord remembers it. Jonah prayed a prayer of dedication. And then, thank God, we can say in the final analysis that Jonah's prayer was a prayer of deliverance. Again, verses 9 and 10. I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. All that good Calvinistic doctrine turned that fish's stomach. One preacher said that that great whale was an Arminian. And when Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord, he vomited him out onto the seashore. Couldn't stomach all that doctrine. But that's the doctrine of the Bible. And we will return to that. What a great statement it is. But Jonah here, you see, is understanding that his deliverance would be of the Lord alone. He wasn't going to be able to swim his way out of the fish's belly. He wasn't going to extricate himself from that situation. There are times when we will find that we cannot extricate ourselves from a given set of circumstances. Only the Lord can deliver us. And he can deliver us. And he will deliver us in his own time. Jonah here learned again this truth that we talked about in chapter 1 of God's sovereignty. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord is in charge. God has a purpose. And that purpose will be fulfilled. And I need to tell myself that more. One preacher put it like this. We need to talk to ourselves more and stop listening to ourselves. Because quite often you know what it's like. Your own heart is telling you things. Your own mind runs riot and tells you certain things. And the things that you're concluding are not true. They're not biblical. Of course, that's the work of Satan. He wants you to think in ways that are not biblical. But what you need to do is to get the scripture and repeat the scripture over to yourself over and over and over again and talk to yourself more. It used to be considered a sign of madness when you talk to yourself, but it's not when you're using the scriptures. Just fill your mind and heart with God's word. Well, this is what I feel. Okay. But what does God say? What does God say? Not how do you feel. It's what does God say? How does the Lord speak of his people? What does the Lord say to us about his control over our lives? Is Romans chapter 8 verse 28 true still? No matter what happens. I've said this many, many times. This is probably the most misquoted verse in the Bible. You know why? Because most people begin this way. The Bible says in Romans 8 28, 
All things work together for good. Of course, that's not the entire verse anyway. But even if you were to go on and say all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, that's still not the whole verse. Because the verse begins, and we know that all things work together for good. This is something that's absolutely certain. Paul said it. We know. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. How do they work together for good? I don't know. I'm sure there are times in your life when you look at a circumstance or a situation and you think, how in the world could that bring glory to God? I do not understand how that set of circumstances could be glorifying to the Lord. And maybe the Lord will give you the answer here on this side of heaven, but maybe He won't. Maybe you'll have to wait. Remember what the Lord said to Peter when he was washing his feet. John 13. What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter, you don't understand right now what I'm doing. That's fine. But thou shalt know hereafter. My father used to sing solos a lot. You've heard me speak of it. One of the hymns that he used to sing an awful lot was, Not now, but in the coming years. It may be in the better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears. Sometime, sometime, we'll understand. We'll catch the broken threads again and finish what we first began. And all those other things that that hymn so beautifully speaks of. The chorus says, Then trust in God through all thy days. Fear not, for he doth hold thy hand. Though dark thy way, still sing and praise. Sometime, Sometime we'll understand. And that's true. The Lord may not tell us this side of heaven why he allowed certain things to happen. But someday I believe we'll look back and we will say with Rutherford as he is quoted by Annie Ross' cousin, I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Someone pointed out that when doing a tapestry, if you look at the underside of it, it's just a mass of different colored threads and knots, and it's meaningless. But when you turn it to the upper side and you look down on it, it's a beautiful picture that has been put together on that tapestry. That's how it is with us and the Lord. The Lord's looking down on the tapestry. The Lord is the one who's weaving the picture. He's putting it all together. And all we see are the threads and the knots. We don't understand. And we can't put it all together. But the Lord ultimately is going to teach us 
that he is and he was in control of it all. And Jonah here, as he spoke to the Lord in prayer, the Lord worked. Because as Jonah is speaking, the Bible says in verse 10, And the Lord spake unto the fish. Jonah spoke to the Lord, but now the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited him out upon the dry land. There was the deliverance. God gave an answer to his prayer. How was he delivered? By a word from God. The Lord spake. That's how it was at the beginning in creation. The Lord spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's how the Lord healed people in the New Testament. One person said to him, Lord, speak the word only and it shall be done. And it was done. And as the Lord speaks the word, the work will be done. The Lord has said in his word, according to your faith, be it unto you. May our prayers be the petitions of faith, which will surely be answered. Whatever it is that we need to be delivered from, whatever the situation we need to be extricated from, the Lord knows and he's able to grant that deliverance. And of course, if it's not the Lord's purpose to bring us out of the circumstances, he will give us grace to endure the circumstances. Sometimes the Lord does that. He doesn't take the affliction away like he did with Paul. What he said to Paul was, no, no, I'm not removing the affliction, but I'm giving you grace to bear it. And so he's able to do that. So may we trust him. May we trust him whatever befall. May we know that Jesus does all things well. Amen and amen.